Thank you for listening to the Collective Church Podcast. Collective is a church for the rest of us. That means if you've never been to church, if you walked away from church, or have struggled to find a church home, we were started for you. For more information about Collective and how to join us on a Sunday morning, please head to www.mycollective.church. Happy Mother's Day. Uh, We're so glad that you're here with us today. Uh, Today, what we're doing is we're finishing up a sermon series that's called Burned. And so for the past few weeks, we've been talking about how we respond when we feel like we've been burned by the church and by Christians. And today, we're actually going to be talking about this idea of being burned by God. And to do this, we're going to look at a story of someone who could have very easily believed that they themselves were burned by God. And it starts in Matthew 11. We're going to jump right in. And so right after Jesus performed a bunch of miracles, this is is what it says, Matthew 11. It says, John the Baptist. Now, just quick note, uh, that doesn't mean he's a Southern Baptist preacher or anything like that because denominations didn't exist at the time. It just means he baptized people. He immersed them in water. Uh, And so it says, John the Baptist, who was in prison— heard about all the things the Messiah was doing. The Messiah is Jesus. Messiah means savior. It means the one that God promised to come and rescue his people. And so he, John the Baptist, sent his disciples to ask Jesus, are you the Messiah we've been expecting or should we keep looking for someone else? Now this question is huge. This question and this story is one of the reasons why when people tell me that the Bible is irrelevant, I know that they're not actually reading it or at least trying to understand it. Because what John is facing is the same thing that so many of you have faced. And so it's not just that the Bible happened, it's that the Bible happens. And so let me give you some background on John. So John the Baptist is actually the cousin of Jesus. And Jesus didn't go public with who he was, meaning he didn't start healing people or teaching or preaching until he was about 30 years old. And before that, John the Baptist was a preacher who would spend his time sharing and proclaiming the coming Messiah. He would say things like, the kingdom of God is near, so you need to turn away from the life you're living and you need to be turning toward God. Or he said, somebody is going to come that they're going to be so holy that I won't even be able to untie their sandals. And so what he was doing, he was preaching about this Messiah. He was preaching about Jesus. In fact, when Jesus goes to get baptized by John, yes, Jesus himself was dunked in water out of obedience to God. When Jesus went to get baptized, John refuses at first and says, I am not worthy to do this. And so when Jesus comes to John the Baptist, John points to Jesus and tells the whole crowd, here is the Lamb of God. He he says, here is the man who came to take away the sin of the world. And so John believed and taught that Jesus was God. John believed and taught that Jesus was the one who was going to rescue humanity. And the story tells us that John had heard about all of the things that Jesus was doing. And so he'd heard all the great stuff about Jesus. He had heard about the healing and the teaching. In fact, if you just flip through the book of Matthew, if you like turn left in your Bible back to the beginning of it and just read the headings of each section, you'll read that Jesus heals a man with leprosy. You'll read that Jesus heals many people, that Jesus calms a storm, that Jesus heals a paralyzed man, that Jesus heals the blind. Even in the middle of all of this, Jesus teaches the most famous sermon of all time that's called the Sermon on the Mount that we talked about last week. And so John has heard about all of the incredible things that Jesus was doing. But the problem is that Jesus is actually reaching out from prison because John was in prison because he obeyed God. 
The king at the time was an immoral person and John actually called him out and told the king, you are living outside of God's law. And so the king did what a king would do and he threw him in jail. And so the reason John is sending messages to Jesus and asking, are you the Messiah we've been expecting or should we keep looking for someone else? Is because he wants to know, Jesus, are you going to get me out of here? In college, I was leaving campus late at night to head to get half-priced appetizers at Applebee's with some friends because I was really cool in college. And as I left campus, I took a right turn and blew straight through a stop sign. Now, in my defense, it's essentially a yield. It had its own turn lane, but the cop that pulled me over didn't really agree with me. And after waiting for a few moments, the cop walked up to my window and asked, do you know why I pulled you over? And honestly, I wanted to say no and just play dumb, but I had Milligan stickers all over my truck so he would know that I was lying to him. And so I admitted that I was aware that I drove through the stop sign and I gave him my license and insurance card. And after a few minutes, he came back and he gave me a ticket, $123 for running a stop sign. I was so ticked off. I mean, I knew it was my fault, but I couldn't afford $123. I was a poor college student. $123 was 12 trips to Applebee's. It was, right, like the things that matter. It was 20 trips to the laundromat. It was half of a textbook that I wasn't really gonna read, but I'd bring to class to pretend like I was paying attention. And so I decided that I wasn't gonna pay the ticket, but instead I was gonna try my luck and talk to a judge. And so I knew it was a risk and I was hoping for some leniency. So the day of court came and I was just praying to God, God, please get me out of this. Or at least God, please lower the fine. Just, just do something, I can't afford this. And I walked into the courtroom, there are two people there. There was a judge who was in gym shorts, like he had just got done working out, and another guy in a suit. I went to college in Tennessee, so it just makes sense now. At the time, I was like, you don't look professional, but he was going to ball later, so we're good. So when the judge asked me what I was doing there, I explained that I got pulled over for running a stop sign, and I wanted to talk to a judge about it. He had me approach the bench, and when I got up there, he asked me what stop sign. And so I explained that it was the one at Milligan, it's the right turn, it's pretty much a yield, I tried to convince him. And he took my ticket, and he ripped it up. And he told me that I had better things to do and better things to spend my money on and let me go home. And as I walked out, I looked up to heaven and I said, thank you, God. And on a much more serious level, John's doing the exact same thing, right? He's held captive and he sends word to Jesus asking, are you going to get me out of this? And that's just like us, right? You've heard that Jesus is a great teacher. You've heard that he did some cool stuff a couple thousand years ago, but you find yourself in a situation where you need help and you want to know, Jesus, are you going to get me out of this? And I think the reality is that a lot of you feel burned by God because you thought you had a great deal on God. You thought that he was going to make your life better, and then something went wrong. And you thought, God, what are you good for? You thought, God, what are you doing in my life? Most people, when we talk about being burned by God, it comes down to this issue. There's something in your life that went wrong. And you know that if there is a God, he must be all-powerful because that's who he is. That's what God is. But if he's not helping your situation, he's not a God worth following. Or so you thought. And I think like John, we have these longings that we want to be fulfilled. We have dreams we want to be fulfilled. We have goals that we want to be fulfilled. But those longings and those dreams and those goals remain empty. And so daily we check the mailbox for the college acceptance letter, but the mailbox remains empty. Because of financial constraints that you feel right now, you already know that under the Christmas tree this year will be empty. And the chair that your grandma always sat in when you visited her is now empty. 
and the crib remains empty, and the engagement ring on your finger remains empty. And if you're honest, in the quiet moments of your soul that are dark to everyone else, you ask, God, are you the one, or should I keep looking? And this is exactly how John feels. And so John says, are you the one? And Jesus actually gives this really bizarre answer as we continue to read the story. This is what he says. He says, it says, Jesus told them, go back to John and tell him what you have heard and see. The blind see, the lame walk, those with leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised to life, and the good news is being preached to the poor. And at first glance, when you read this story, it kind of feels like a dumb answer from Jesus. Because Jesus tells John's messengers something they already knew. Jesus tells John all of the stuff he'd been doing, but this story started with John acknowledging that. He's saying, I've heard all these great things, and Jesus' response is, here are the specifics. So the question is, what's going on? Why is Jesus answering John in this way? To understand Jesus' response, we actually have to refer back to a story in Luke 4 in the Bible. When Jesus was 30, he was at a local synagogue. And while there, he was handed a scroll of the prophet Isaiah. And Isaiah was a prophet who had written all about what the Messiah would do when he arrived. And so realistically, it was foretelling what Jesus was going to do. And so Jesus, in this moment, unrolls the scroll, and he starts to read Isaiah 61. And he says, here's what the Messiah will do, and then this is what he reads. It says, the blind will see, the lame will walk, the lepers are cured, the dead are raised to life, good news will be preached to the poor, and prisoners will be set free. So in Luke 4, Jesus says, I came to do all these things because I am the Messiah that has been talked about in this prophecy. And John the Baptist, knowing this prophecy from Isaiah, asked Jesus, you came to set the prisoners free. I'm in prison. Are you the one we are waiting for? But Jesus says to the messengers, go back and tell John everything I'm doing. But he leaves off that phrase and he sets the prisoners free. He doesn't actually say a word about the very thing that John wants to know about. And it feels kind of like a bait and switch, right? I was told if I followed God, he would heal my marriage. If I'm staring divorce in the face, where's God? I was told that if I followed God, my finances would be in order, but one more month of this and I'll have to declare bankruptcy. Where's God? I was told if I followed God, I'd have life to the full, but I'm single and I'm tired of it. Where is God? And so a lot of you feel suckered with Jesus because you were told that if you followed Jesus, that your life would be perfect, that following Jesus was the solutions to all of your struggles. And sometimes with these struggles, we actually wonder, are these our fault, right? We think maybe it was that one night in college. Maybe if I'd not done that, God would do this for me. Or maybe if I'd just been a better person my whole life, God would bail me out in this way. But Jesus actually says that's not the case either. A little bit further in the story, this is what he says in Matthew eleven eleven. He says, I tell you the truth, of all who have ever lived, none is greater than John the Baptist. He says, if anybody in the history of the world deserves good things, it's this guy. But he also says, I'm not going to help him in the way that he wants. And so here's how the story ends. John doesn't get out of prison. In fact, he gets beheaded. He never goes home. He never sees his mom again. Uh, he doesn't get married and have kids. He doesn't spend his 401k. He gets his head chopped off. And Jesus says that the guy who's going to get executed is the greatest person who have ever lived. And so this story alone should dispel the myth that if you're good enough, 
God will solve all your problems. This story alone should dispel the myth that following Jesus means there will be no pain. And Jesus knows that his response is going to be a letdown for John. He knows that John is going to struggle. And so Jesus also says this. He says, God blesses those who do not fall away because of me. And Jesus tells John that God blesses those who don't turn away because of me. In the context, I think what Jesus is saying is that God blesses those who do not turn away because of what I am not. Right? He's saying God blesses those who do not turn away because of what I won't do. See, when it comes down to being burned by God, we have complaints about what God didn't do. God didn't heal the cancer. God didn't prevent the accident. God didn't fix the marriage. God didn't fill in the blank. And what Jesus says to you is God blesses the person who doesn't fall away because of what I don't do. And too often enough, we buy into this myth that following God is easy or safe. And somewhere along the way, we combine our belief in God with the American dream. And we equate that following God results in a full 401k with a ton of grandkids and living on a sailboat. So a lot of people feel burned by God when things don't turn out great. And at the end of the day, I think it comes down to a dissonance between what we dream and what reality really is of what life really is. And so we throw our hands up in the air and we shout to God, if you are so great, why is this happening? We ask why. Why is my mom sick again? Why can't we get pregnant? Why am I still single? Why isn't life going the way that I want it to? And the answer is simple. It's one that should be on the lips of every Christian. It's I don't know. I don't know. Why is there suffering? I don't know. Why does Jesus seem to intervene in some instances and not others? I have no idea. I don't know. If Jesus promised life to the full, why is my experience so miserable? I don't know. You see, the Bible doesn't answer all of our questions. In fact, when it comes to the specific question of suffering and disappointment in God, the Bible doesn't give us an answer that satisfies us emotionally at all. It gives us a couple clues, right? We learn some things from the Bible about it. We learn that God is all-powerful because he can create the universe from nothing, we learn that God loves us because he sent his son Jesus to die for our sins in our place. We learn that when Jesus encounters suffering in his own life, he weeps. There's a story in the Bible when Jesus goes to the graveside of his good friend Lazarus. And when he gets there, he doesn't immediately perform a miracle. He doesn't immediately turn it into some sort of teaching point. What he does is that he weeps. Philip Yancey says that from that moment, we learn that Jesus gives God a face, and that face is streaked with tears. And so when we suffer or feel disappointment, we look at the thing that's hurting us, and we think, God is in this thing. But what Jesus shows us in the Bible is that God is not in this thing that's hurting us, but God is in us, hurting with us. And so the Bible gives some big picture things about suffering, but it never gives a satisfactory answer, and that upsets us. So we ask God, what good are you? That's why we cry out, what good is God? If God doesn't guarantee me health and prosperity and a long life, in fact, if because I follow Jesus, things may end badly for me, what good is following him? I think there's another story that provides an answer to this question. One of the most famous stories in the Bible is when Jesus feeds over 5,000 people with five loaves of bread and two fish. And it's an incredible moment that shows Jesus' compassion. It shows his power. 
Uh, we even see people proclaiming that he is the Savior because of that. People who witnessed this miracle fell on their knees like, Jesus, you are who you said you are. You are who God promised you would be. But the very next day, people want more. A huge crowd surrounds Jesus and they begin to ask him for more food. But Jesus responds that you all want like bread, but I'll give you spiritual bread so your soul will never be hungry again. And then this is what happened in John 6. At this point, many of his disciples turned away and deserted him. A crowd of his own followers abandoned him because they didn't want what he was offering, because they wanted something different, because they wanted a different answer from him. And then Jesus turned to the 12 and he asked, are you, are you also going to leave? And Simon Peter replied, Lord, to whom would we go? You have the words that give eternal life. We believe and we know that you are the Holy One of God. So Jesus asks the 12 people that are closest to him, are you going to leave too? And Peter, his closest follower and, and probably his best friend says, to whom would we go? He says, Jesus, you have the words that give eternal life. You are the Messiah. Maybe we're hungry and maybe we wanted real bread, but ultimately, God, we trust you. Where else would we go? And so if your life is better without Jesus, don't follow him. Jesus never forces anyone to follow him. And if your life of suffering is easier to understand without Jesus, then leave him. If your life with sleeping around with a different guy every month is working out great, then leave Jesus. If your marriage that's in the toilet is better and easier to fix without Jesus, then leave him. If your finances that are out of control are easier to control without Jesus, then leave him. He won't force you to stay. But here's why I wouldn't leave. Because I believe that Jesus died and then he rose again. You see, Buddha said, I will teach you the way. Muhammad said, I'm a prophet of the way. But Jesus said, I am the way. And that's a bold claim, and the only way to back that up is to come back from the dead. And so after he suffered the most brutal execution known to man in crucifixion, Jesus stayed in the grave for three days, and then he conquered death, proving that he could defeat sin, that his words could be trusted, and that he is the one that gives us true hope. So although my life doesn't always go the way I want it to, although there is pain, where else would I go? I thought a lot about how to finish uh, this message in this series. And with today being Mother's Day, I'm majorly conflicted about what to talk about because Mother's Day is often a reminder of pain. For years, Mother's Day used to be one of the highest attended Sundays at church. It was Christmas, Easter, Mother's Day. And in some churches, it's actually still true, but not at Collective because today is heavy. And I fully understand the irony of talking about being burned by God on Mother's Day and so instead of me sharing a story to close out this sermon in the series, I've asked Maggie Wells to come up on stage and share a little bit about her story. Let's give it up for Maggie. I don't know about you, but Mother's Day is one of the hardest days of the year for me. It's just very bittersweet. A day that is meant to celebrate our moms and the children that make us a mom is a reminder to me that the child who first made me a mom isn't here. Four years ago, I spent my first Mother's Day in the NICU with our 24-day-old son. I got to hold him for the first time in 20 days while his nurse changed the blankets of his isolate. And I got to push a button that would give him his first taste of milk. 
Three days later, I would hold him for the last time. In 2014, my husband Chris and I began our journey as parents. I thought it was very fitting to find out that I was pregnant on Labor Day. Early on, we found out that Michael and Ray were also expecting their first, and we thought it was going to be so exciting to raise our first kids together. Ray and I began sharing stories about vomiting and commiserating over our dinners of ramen and popcorn, which was all our stomachs could handle some days. But our journeys quickly took different paths when at our 14-week sonogram, we were told that our baby scan showed an abnormality, a one-centimeter large cyst on the back of our two-inch long baby's neck. We were told that it was likely to be fatal. We spent many days and nights crying and praying that our baby would live. I would wake up in the middle of the night and pray on my knees for this teeny baby we didn't even know. And people were praying with us. On the night before a big appointment that would essentially tell us if our pregnancy would continue or not, our closest friends prayed with us. Many of them are at Collective today. Prayers were answered and this is resolved. Within a couple of weeks, we learned that our baby had Down syndrome, and right around then, we also found out that we were having a boy, and we began praying for him by name. Through weeks of sonograms and specialist visits, we became confident that our Sammy was going to change the world. We had already seen so many great things from such a tumultuous time. We knew going into delivery that Sammy had a defect in his esophagus and that he'd go directly into the NICU, but we weren't scared. We knew that God was taking care of our baby. Everyone we knew was praying. On April 17th, 2015, at 11.23 a.m., our perfect 17 and a quarter inch, four pound, 13 ounce baby was born. He was beautiful. Sammy had two corrective surgeries in three weeks, and neither time did we worry if he'd be okay. I was confident that God had heard our prayers. I mean, we had named him Samuel for crying out loud. His name literally means because I asked the Lord for him. But when Sammy passed, I lost my confidence. I felt like I didn't know anything anymore. In my life, I had never felt closer to God than during my pregnancy. I leaned on Jesus for everything. The first time I felt Sammy move was during Oh Come All Ye Faithful at church. I felt like my connection to God was spot on. How could I have been so confident that I knew what God was doing when clearly Sammy dying was never an option in my mind? I wish that I could say my faith never wavered, but that simply isn't true. I was angry and I felt so alone. I knew that I needed to talk to God and to tell him how I felt, but I didn't want to. In my mind, God hadn't lived up to his end of the deal, and he had broken his promise. Sammy had gotten through two successful surgeries, and he was on the road to recovery. We were making a plan with the doctors for him getting home. Our son was supposed to change the world and show people what love looks like. My sister and I were pregnant together, and we were to give our parents their first grandkids to watch grow up together. We had plans. 
It has taken me these past four years to realize that while I thought I knew what God was doing, I simply didn't. I'm still learning about Sammy's life and how God used him and still uses him today. I'm still learning that just because things didn't happen the way that we thought they would, doesn't mean that I was completely off about what God was doing. He was just doing things differently than we wanted. When Sammy was in the hospital, one morning I went into his nursery at home and he'd been having a couple rough days. That's kind of the life in the NICU. And I gripped the railing of his crib and I just prayed for mercy. I prayed that God would have mercy on our baby boy. And in my mind, mercy meant healing him. It was, and it still is hard to realize that my vision of mercy for Sammy and God's vision of mercy for Sammy were two different things. On Sammy's first birthday, we decided that we wanted to celebrate him every year by planting flowers. His birthday's right around the time when you can start putting plants in the garden, and we thought that this would be a great tradition to honor him. For both Chris and I, the flowers represent renewal, hope, and growth. They're a reminder of God's creation and his goodness. For the first time this year, our son Jude got to help out, and he is obsessed with Sammy's flowers. Every flower he sees belongs to his brother, and you can't convince him otherwise. Holding up his flowers that he so astutely named Red, while he helped dig a hole, brought so much joy on Sammy's birthday this year. Every day we check on the flowers. Jude gets this huge grin on his face, and he jumps up and down and giggles half the time. It's enough to make your heart explode. But the best part about it all is that this two-and-a-half-year-old loves his big brother, who he has never met so much. He talks to his pictures like he's in the room, and when sunsets paint the sky, he yells, Mommy, Daddy, Sammy Sky, thank you, bro. Sometimes when Jude is sleeping, Chris and I just stare at him because he looks so much like his brother. And all you moms can understand, this is totally unfair that neither of my boys look like me because I did all the work. <laughs> but my boys are perfect. In Jude, I see smiles and I hear giggles that are just so infectious that I just assume it's a little extra energy that Sammy gave his brother. But I'll be honest, there are a lot of nights when we watch Jude play and I just cry because I so wish that I could watch my little boy play with his big brother. Last week was honestly the first time that I thought to myself, I have Jude because I have Sammy. Not, I have Jude because Sammy isn't here. I don't get one without the other. I will always wish in my lifetime that I could watch our boys play together. But that's when I remember that the hope that comes from Jesus is just so real. The promise, the one that God never broke, was that he promised to love me and my boys enough to sacrifice his own. He promised to love us enough to give us eternal life. 
And that's what Chris and I cling to on the good days and on the really terrible, ugly cry days. We aren't guaranteed anything in this life. Being a follower of Jesus doesn't guarantee us that life's going to be easy. Life for us in the past four years has been anything but easy. But God does promise us eternity through Jesus. I will live my days loving the time that I get to spend with Jude and mourning the time that we don't have with Sammy. It's just a part of who I am. I can't help that. I'm a mom who lost her baby. Losing Sammy has caused me the most excruciating pain I have ever endured. But my hope comes from knowing that we love and we serve a God that promises a day that we won't feel this anymore. We won't have to feel this pain. And for that, I'm thankful. I don't know your story. Some of you have been fortunate enough to have healthy pregnancies and healthy babies. Some of you have suffered a miscarriage. Some of you have been praying for a baby to hold for a long time. And it doesn't seem like an answer's coming. Some of you have endured a loss like me. Some of you are adoptive or foster moms. Maybe kids aren't in your plans. Maybe your kids have grown up and they have kids of their own. Maybe you don't talk to your kids. Maybe you've lost your mom. Each road we are on carries its joys and its heartaches. No road, no matter where we are, is easy, but I want you to know that collective is a place, no matter where you are, that you don't have to feel alone. So, if you choose, there's a flower for you to plant, waiting for you on your way out. This is our gift for you today. We want to offer something small as our way of reminding us, ourselves that even when we don't understand, God is good. He brings us peace. As these flowers grow, they're a reminder that our relationship with Jesus gives us renewal and brings us hope. Thanks. The only reason why someone like Maggie can get up here and share her story is because of the faith that she has in Jesus. It's because of the hope that she has in Jesus. And some of you can't fathom how people like Chris and Maggie can get through what life is thrown at them. Just to be honest, it's because your faith is in the wrong place. For many of you, as you feel this pain and you feel this idea of where are you, God, the thing is you have to start with him. It starts with him, a relationship with him, it starts by coming to Jesus and saying, okay, this is my mess, this is my life. What do I do now? And so will it solve all of your problems? The answer is no. We will never pretend like it does. But you have to ask yourself, where else will you go? I don't know what you're going through. I don't know if you feel burned. I don't know what a day like today feels like. And if I could, I would love to promise you that everything will be okay. I would love to promise you that you'll be victorious in whatever battle that you're going on in your life right now, that Jesus will heal all of your problems. But it's just not true. And I'm sorry. But here's what I do know. Jesus is telling you not to walk away because of it. 
You see, Jesus didn't come for people who are religious or for people who are good enough, for people whose lives are just fine without him. Jesus came for the people who walked out on God because they thought God had walked out on them. And I know some of you are here this morning because you feel like you were burned by God. Right, you look at the situations in your life, you see an elderly relative who's been suffering for years with no insight, you see a child with an illness that isn't going away, you see a divorce that's already gone through, you see infertility that the doctor says will not get better. And I want you to know that collective, we understand. We understand that there are hurts and that time doesn't always heal. We understand that there are questions that don't have answers and we understand But for those of you who feel like you've been burned by God, here's my question. Where else will you go? Where else will you go? Because there's one person who has words of eternal life, and he rose from the grave to prove it, and the only thing that it takes is just an ounce of faith in him, an ounce of believing that God is who he says he is and can bring that hope and can bring that peace and can bring that life back to you. There's only one person and one thing in your life that you can trust no matter what. Where else will you go? Let's pray. God, um, so many of us are just hurting. God, there are things going on in our life that we don't understand. There's, there's brokenness that we feel. There's pain that we experience every day. And God, all we want you to do is fix it. But God, so often we forget that what we want for our lives isn't what's best. God, if we we got to choose everything for ourselves, we'd still end up in the place we're in right now. God, I, I pray for anybody here that feels burned by you. God, feels like they've been praying to you and not getting an answer. God, feels like you've done something wrong to hurt them. God, I pray that today can be an opportunity for them to turn back toward you and just see how good you really are. God, see that in their pain that you are standing alongside them and you're weeping. God, we know that this life is hard. We feel it every single day. God, we know that there aren't always answers to it. But God, I pray uh, that we feel you in our lives, that we see you in our lives. God, I pray that as a church, we continue to rally around each other because we know we're not in this alone. God, help us.